Welcome everyone to episode 65 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew and I've got an intense one for you guys today. So let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. The first story is a little graphic. I will try to keep the details to a minimum, but listener discretion is advised. Paul Kenneth Bernardo, born August 27, 1964, is a Canadian serial rapist and serial killer dubbed the Scarborough Rapist, the Schoolgirl Killer, and together with his former wife, Carla Homold, Homolka, one of the Ken and Barbie killers. He is known for initially committing a series of rapes in Scarborough, Ontario, a suburb of Toronto, between 1987 and 1990, before subsequently committing three murders with Homolka. Among these victims was Carla's younger sister, Tammy. Paul Bernardo was born in Scarborough, Ontario on August 27, 1964, the third and legally youngest child of Kenneth Walter Bernardo and Marilyn Elizabeth. Paul's father often sexually abused his older sister Deborah in front of other family members and would eventually be charged with crimes involving voyeurism and pedophilia. Paul's mother often withdrew from her family due to depression and agoraphobia, eventually moving into the basement. Paul presented himself as being a happy and well-adjusted child, despite his family's dysfunction, and was an active member of the Boy Scouts. Beneath the charming facade, however, he gradually developed pyromaniac inclinations and dark sexual fantasies, one of which involved creating a quote, virgin farm, where he would breed virgin girls to rape. After a fight between his parents in 1981, Paul, then age 16, was informed by his mother that he was the result of an extramarital affair and that Kenneth was not his biological father. Repulsed, he began to call his mother a slut and whore, and she reciprocated by calling him a bastard from hell. Later, After growing weary of Paul's domineering behavior, his first girlfriend left him for one of his friends. In retaliation, 
he set fire to all items in his possession that belonged to his girlfriend. Paul attended Sir Wilfrid Lawyer Collegiate Institute, and in 1982, the University of Toronto Scarborough, where another notorious Canadian murderer, Russell Williams, was coincidentally two academic years behind him. As his day job, Paul worked for Amway, the sales culture of which deeply affected him. He bought the books and tapes of famous motivational get-rich-and-famous experts. Paul and his college friends would practice pickup techniques on young women that they would meet in the bar and were fairly successful. He also delighted in humiliating his dates in public and engaging in aggressive anal intercourse in bed. His relationships would become increasingly violent and unstable and his partners were threatened with death if they were to disclose the abuse. In 1986, he was served with restraining orders by two women after he made obscene phone calls to them. In October of 1987, Paul would meet Carla Homolka while she was visiting Scarborough to attend a pet store conference. The two shared an immediate retraction as Carla encouraged Paul's sadistic sexual behavior. Between 1987 and 1990, Paul committed increasingly vicious serial rapes in and around Scarborough. He attacked most of his victims after stalking them as they got off of buses late in the evening. Some of the known incidents are, on May 4, 1987, he raped a 21-year-old Scarborough woman in front of her parents' house after he followed her home. And then on May 14th, he would rape a 19-year-old woman in the backyard of her parents' house. On July 17, 1987, the attempted rape of a young woman. Although he beat the victim, Paul abandoned the attack when she fought back. On September 29, 1987, he attempted the rape of a 15-year-old girl. Paul broke into the victim's house and entered her bedroom. He jumped on her back, put his hand over her mouth, and threatened her with a knife, bruised the side of her face, and bit her ear. He then fled when the victim's mother entered the room and screamed. Anthony Hainmeyer was wrongfully convicted of the assault in 1989 and served a 16-month prison sentence, but was exonerated after Paul admitted to the crime in 2006. On December 16, 1987, the rape of a 15-year-old girl. The next day, the Toronto Police Service issued a warning to women in Scarborough traveling alone at night, especially those riding buses. On December 23rd, the rape of a 17-year-old girl with a knife that he used to threaten his victims. At this point, he began to be known as a Scarborough rapist. On, a t- on April 18, 1988, the attack of a 17-year-old girl. May 25th, Paul was nearly caught by a uniformed police officer staking out a bus shelter. Although the officer noticed him hiding under a tree and pursued him on foot, he was able to escape. May 30th, 1988, the rape of an 18-year-old woman in Mississauga, Ontario, about 25 miles southwest of Scarborough. October 4th, 1988, the attempted rape 
and attempted rape in Scarborough, although his intended victim fought him off. He inflicted two stab wounds to her thigh and butt, which required 12 stitches. On November 16, 1988, the rape of an 18-year-old woman in the backyard of her parents' house. November 17, 1988, police formed a task force to capture the Scarborough rapist. Then on December 27, 1988, the attempted rape of a neighbor the attempted rape with a neighbor chasing him off. June 20th, 1989, another attempted rape. The young woman fought and her screams alerted neighbors and Paul fled with scratches on his face. August 15th, 1989, the rape of a 22-year-old woman. November 21st, the rape of a 15-year-old girl that he saw in a bus shelter. December 22nd, the rape of a 19-year-old woman. May 26, 1990, the rape of a 19-year-old woman. The victim's vivid recollection of her attacker enabled the police to create a computer computer portrait, which was released two days later by police and publicized in Toronto and the surrounding areas. From May to September of 1990, the Toronto Police submitted more than 130 suspect samples for DNA testing. Investigators received two tips pointing to Bernardo. The first, in June, had been filed by a bank employee. The second was from Tina Smirius, wife of one of the three brothers who were among Bernardo's closest friends. Tina would tell detectives that Paul had been called in on a previous rape investigation, once in December of 1987, but he had never been interviewed. Paul would frequently talk about his sex life to Tina and said that he liked rough sex. The police interviewed Paul on November 20th, 1990, for 35 minutes. He voluntarily provided DNA samples for forensic testing. When the detectives asked why he thought that he was being investigated for the rapes, he admitted that he resembled the composite. Reportedly, detectives found Paul more credible than Tina. By 1990, he had lost his job as an accountant and was smuggling cigarettes across the nearby Canada and United States border. He spent long periods of time with Homolka's family, who liked him and were unaware of his criminal activities. Although he was engaged to Carla, he had become obsessed with her younger sister Tammy, peering into her window and entering her room to masturbate while she slept. Carla helped Paul by breaking the windows in her sister's room, allowing him access. According to his testimony at trial, Carla laced spaghetti sauce with crushed Valium that she had stolen from her employer at an animal clinic. She served it to her sister, who soon lost consciousness. Paul then raped Tammy while Carla watched. After one minute, Tammy regained consciousness. Six months before their 1991 wedding, Carla stole the anesthetic agent Halothane from the clinic. On December 23, 1990, Carla and Paul administered sleeping pills to 15-year-old Tammy in a rum and eggnog cocktail. 
When Tammy lost consciousness, Carla and Paul undressed her, and Carla ap applied a howlethin-soaked cloth to her sister's nose and mouth. Carla wanted to, quote, give Tammy's virginity to Bernardo for Christmas. According to her, Paul was disappointed that he was not Carla's first sex partner. With Tammy's parents sleeping upstairs, the couple videotaped themselves raping Tammy in the basement. Tammy then began to vomit. They tried to revive her and called 911 after hiding evidence, dressing Tammy and moving her into her bedroom. A few hours later, Tammy was pronounced dead at St. Catherine's General Hospital without regaining consciousness. Despite being observed vacuuming and washing laundry in the middle of the night, and despite a chemical burn on Tammy's face, the regional, regional municipality of Niagara Coroner and Carla's family accepted the couple's versions of events. The official cause of Tammy's death was ruled accidental, the result of choking on vomit after consumption of alcohol. After Tammy's death, Paul and Carla videotaped themselves engaging in sexual intercourse with Carla wearing Tammy's clothing and pretending to be her. They moved out of the Homolka house to a rented bungalow in Port Dalhuis to allow Carla's parents to grieve. Early in the morning on June 15, 1991, while detouring through Burlington to steal license plates, Paul came across 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey. Leslie had been locked out of her house for missed curfew after attending a friend's wake. Paul left his car and approached her, saying that he wanted to break into a neighbor's house. Unfazed, she asked if he had any cigarettes. When Bernardo led her to his car, he blindfolded her forced her into the car and drove her to Port Delahuise and informed Carla that they had a victim. Paul and Carla videotaped themselves torturing and sexually abusing Mahaffey while they listened to pop music. At one point, Bernardo said, You're doing a good job, Leslie, a damned good job, adding, The next two hours are going to determine what I do to you. Right now, you're scoring perfect. On another segment of tape played at Bernardo's trial, the assault escalated. Mahaffey cried out in pain and begged Paul to stop. In the crown description of the scene, he was sodomizing her while her hands were bound with twine. Mahaffey later told Paul that her blindfold seemed to be slipping, which signaled the possibility that she could identify her attackers if she lived. The following day, Paul claimed Carla fed her a lethal dose of halcyon, H-A-L-C-I-O-N, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Carla claimed that Bernardo strangled her. They then put Mahaffey's body in the basement the day before Homolka's family had a dinner at the house. Following the dinner party, Paul and Carla decided to dismember Mahaffey's body and in case each part of her remains in cement. Paul bought a dozen bags of cement at a hardware store the following day. He kept the receipts, which were damaging at his trial. After he cut apart the body using his grandfather's circular saw, 
The couple made a number of trips to dump the cement blocks in Lake Garrison, 11 miles south of Port Dalhuis. At least one of the blocks weighed 200 pounds and was beyond their ability to sink. It lay near the shore where it was found on June 29, 1991, coincidentally on Bernardo and Homolka's wedding day. Mahaffey's orthodontic appliance was instrumental in identifying her body. Several days before Homolka's release from prison in July of 2005, Paul was interviewed by police and his lawyer, Tony Bryant. According to Bryant, Bernardo stated that he had always intended to free the girls that he and Homolka had kidnapped. However, when Mahaffey's blindfold fell off, Carla was concerned that Mahaffey would identify Paul and report the couple to the police. Paul then claimed that Carla planned to murder Mahaffey by injecting an air bubble into her bloodstream, triggering an air embolism. During the after-school hours of April 16, 1992, Paul and Carla drove through St. Catharines to look for potential victims. Although students were still going home, the streets were generally empty. As they passed Holy Cross Secondary School, the couple spotted 15-year-old Kristen French walking home. As they pulled into the parking lot of nearby Grace Lutheran Church, Carla got out of the car carrying a map, pretending to need assistance. When Kristen looked at the map, Bernardo attacked her from behind and forced her into the front seat of the car at knife point. From the back seat, Homolka subdued French by pulling her hair. After Kristen failed to arrive home, her parents became convinced that she had met with foul play and notified the police. Within 24 hours, the Niagara Regional Police Service assembled a team, searched Kristen's after-school route, and found several witnesses who had seen the abduction from different locations. Kristen's shoe, recovered from the parking lot, undiscovered the seriousness, underscored the seriousness of the abduction. Over the Easter weekend, Paul and Carla videotaped themselves, torturing, raping, and sodomizing Kristen, forcing her to drink large amounts of alcohol and submit to Paul. At his trial, Crown Prosecutor Ray Houlihan said that Paul always intended to kill Kristen because she was never blindfolded and could identify her captors. The following day, Paul and Carla murdered Kristen before going to the Homolkas for Easter dinner. Carla testified at her trial that Paul strangled Kristen for several minutes while she watched. Paul claimed that Kristen, er, Paul claimed that Carla beat Kristen with a rubber mallet because she tried to escape, and Kristen was strangled with a noose around her neck, which was secured to a hope chest. Carla then went to fix her hair. French's nude body was found on April 30, 1992, in a ditch in Burlington, about 45 minutes from St. Catharines, and a short distance from the cemetery where Mahaffey was buried. She had been washed and her hair was cut off, although it was thought that the hair was removed as a trophy. Homolka testified that it was cut to impede identification. 
in addition to the three confirmed murders ascribed to Paul and Carla, suspicions remain about other victims or intended victims. Derek Finkel's 1997 book, No Claim to Mercy, presented evidence tying Bernardo to the presumed murder of 22-year-old Elizabeth Bain, who disappeared on June 19, 1990. Bain told her mother that she was going to check the tennis schedule at UTSC. Three days later, her car was found with a large blood stain on the back seat. Bernardo matched the description of a man in the Colonel Danforth Park area where Bain was last seen, and later confessed to at least eight attacks in and around the same park. Bain's boyfriend, Robert Baltovich, was convicted of second-degree murder in her death on March 31, 1992. During his trial and subsequent imprisonment, Baltovich and his lawyers repeatedly alleged that Bernardo was the perpetrator. The Court of Appeals for Ontario set aside Baltovich's conviction on December 2, 2004, and at his retrial on April 22, 2008, the Crown told the court that no evidence would be called against Baltovich and asked the jury to find him not guilty of second-degree murder. When questioned about the Bain killing in 2007, Bernardo said, The answer to that is no, but the 800-pound gorilla in the room is that there is a life to 25 sentence. Shortly after Tammy Homolko's funeral, her parents left town and her sister Lori visited grandparents in Mississauga, leaving the house empty. According to author Stephen Williams, during the weekend of January 12, 1991, Bernardo abducted a girl, took her to the house, and raped her while Carla watched and dropped her off on a deserted road near Lake Gibson. Bernardo and Homolka called her January Girl. At about 5.30 a.m. on April 6, 1991, Bernardo abducted a 14-year-old who was training to be a coxswain for a local rowing team. The girl was distracted by a blonde woman who waved at her from her car, enabling Bernardo to drag her into the shrubbery near the rowing club. He sexually assaulted her forced her to remove her clothes, and made her wait five minutes during which he disappeared. On June 7, 1991, Carla invited a 15-year-old girl she had befriended at a pet shop two years earlier, known as Jane Doe, in the trials, to their home. After being drugged by Carla, Doe was sexually assaulted by the couple, which was videotaped. In August, Jane Doe was invited back to the couple's residence and was again drugged. Homolka called 911 for help after the girl vomited and stopped breathing while being raped. The ambulance was recalled after Bernardo and Homolka resuscitated her. On July 28, 1991, Bernardo stalked Sidney Kirshen, aged 21, after he saw her while driving home from work. On August 9th, he resumed stalking her. This, this time, she took evasive action, stopping at her boyfriend's house just prior to his arrival. After spotting, spotting Bernardo, the boyfriend would give chase, 
came across Bernardo's gold Nissan and took note of the license plate. The couple reported the incident to the NRP, which established that the car belonged to Bernardo. An NRP officer visited Paul's house and saw the car parked in the driveway, but did not pursue the matter nor submitted an official police report. A newspaper clipping found during the police search of Paul's house described a rape that occurred in Hawaii during the couple's honeymoon there in the summer of 91. The article, The Rape's Similarity to Bernardo's M.O., and its occurrence during the couple's presence in Hawaii led police to speculate on Paul's involvement. Law enforcement officials in both Canada and the U.S. have stated that their belief that Paul was responsible for this rape, but due to extradition issues, this case was never prosecuted. On November 30, 1991, Terry Anderson, a grade 9 student at Lakeport Secondary School, adjacent to French's Catholic school, vanished less than two kilometers from the parking lot where French would later be abducted. In April 1992, the NRP said that they had no evidence to suggest a link. Anderson's body was ultimately found in the water at Port Dalhuis. The coroner saw no evidence of foul play, despite the difficulties of determin determining such factors in a body that had been in the water for six months. The coroner's ruling that her death was by drowning, probably as a result of drinking beer and taking LSD, was controversial in light of the circumstances of the Mahaffey and French murders. On March 29, 1992, Bernardo stalked and videotaped sisters Shauna and Carrie Patrick from his car, following them to their parents' house. The sisters incorrectly recorded his license plate number. Shauna reported the incidents to the NRP on March 31, 1992, and was given an incident number should further information develop. On April 18, 1992, while French was still being held captive, Bernardo was spotted by Carrie while he had gone out to buy dinner and rent a movie. Despite failing to track him to his house, Carrie got a better description of his license plate and car, which she reported to the NRP. This information, however, was mishandled by the police. In 2006, Paul confessed to at least 10 more sexual assaults dating to March 1986, including the 1987 assault of a 15-year-old girl. Another man, Anthony Mayer had just been convicted of the assault and served a full sentence for it. On June 25, 2008, the Court of Appeal for Ontario overturned the conviction and exonerated Mayer. Carla and Paul were questioned by police several times in connection with the Scarborough Rapist investigation. Tammy Homolka's death and Paul's stalking of other women before French's abduction. On May 12, 1992, Paul was briefly interviewed by an NRP sergeant and constable who decided that he was an unlikely suspect despite his admission that he had previously been questioned in connection to the Scarborough Rapist. Three days later, the Green Ribbon Task Force was created to investigate the murders of Mahaffey and French. 
Bernardo and Homolka had applied to have their names legally changed to Teal, which Paul had taken from the serial killer in the 1988 film Criminal Law. At the end of May, John Motil, an acquaintance of Carla, reported Paul as a possible suspect in the murders. In December of 1992, the Center of Forensic Sciences finally began testing DNA samples provided by Paul two years earlier. On December 27th, Paul severely beat Carla with a flashlight, leaving multiple bruises. Claiming that she had been in an automobile accident, Carla returned to work on January 4th of 93. Her skeptical co-workers called her parents, and although they rescued her the following day by physically removing her from Paul's house, Carla went back to it frantic to frantically search for something. Carla's parents took her to St. Catherine's General Hospital, where she gave a statement to the NRP that she was a battered spouse and filed charges against Paul. He was arrested and later released on his own recognizance. A friend who found Paul's suicide note intervened and Carla moved in with relatives in Brampton. 26 months after Paul submitted a DNA sample, Toronto police were informed that it matched that of the Scarborough rapist and immediately placed him under 24-hour surveillance. Metro Toronto Sexual Assault Squad investigators interviewed Homolka on February 9th, 1993. Despite hearing their suspicions about Paul, she focused on his abuse of her. Later that night, Homolka told her aunt and uncle that Paul was the Scarborough rapist, that she and Bernardo were involved in the rape and murder of Mahaffey and French, and that the rapes were recorded on videotape. The NRP subsequently reopened its investigation of Tammy Homolka's death. Two days later, Carla met with Niagara Falls lawyer George Walker, who sought legal immunity from Crown Prosecutor. Houlihan, in exchange for her cooperation, was also placed under 24-hour 24 24-hour 24 surveillance. The couple's name change was approved on February 13, 1993. The next day, Walker met with Crown Criminal Law Officer Director Murray Siegel. After Walker told Siegel about the videotapes, Siegel advised him that due to Carla's involvement in the crimes, full immunity was not a possibility. On February 17th, detectives arrested Bernardo on several charges and obtained a search warrant. Because his links to the murders was weak, the warrant was limited. No evidence, which was not expected and documented in the warrant, could be removed from his property. And all videotapes found by police had to be viewed in the house. Damage had to be kept to a minimum, and police could not tear down walls looking for the tapes. The search of the house, including updated warrants, lasted 71 days, and the only tape found by police had a brief segment of Homolka performing oral sex on Jane Doe during a call from, during a call from jail. Bernardo told his lawyer, Ken Murray, that the rape videos were hidden in a ceiling light fixture in the upstairs bathroom. Murray found the tapes and hid them from investigators. 
After Murray resigned as Bernardo's lawyer, his new attorney, John Rosen, turned the tapes over to police. On May 5th, Walker was informed that the government was offering Hamulka a plea bargain of 12 years imprisonment, which she had one week to, to accept. If she declined, the government would charge her with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, and other crimes. Walker accepted the offer, and Homolka later agreed to it. On May 14th, Homolka's plea bargain was finalized, and she began giving statements to police investigators. She told police that Paul boasted that he had raped as many as 30 women, twice as many as the police suspected. Bernardo was tried for the murders of French and Mahaffey in 1995, and his trial included detailed testimony from Carla and videotapes of the rapes. Bernardo testified that the deaths were accidental, later claiming that Carla was the actual killer. On September, on September 1st, 1995, Paul was convicted of a number of offenses including the two first-degree murders and two aggravated sexual assaults, and sentenced to life in prison without parole for at least 25 years. He was designated a dangerous offender, making him unlikely to ever be released. Homolka's plea bargain was criticized by many Canadians, since Bernardo's first defense lawyer, Ken Murray, had withheld the videotapes, exposing Homolka's culpability for 17 months. The videotapes were considered crucial evidence, and prosecutors said that they would never had agreed to the plea bargain if they had seen them. Murray was later acquitted of obstruction of justice and faced a disciplinary hearing by the Law Society of Upper Canada. Although Bernardo was kept in, in the segregation unit at Kingston Penitentiary for his own safety, he was attacked and harassed. He was punched in the face by another inmate when he returned from a shower in 96. In June 1999, five convicts tried to storm his segregation range and a riot squad used gas to disperse them. On February 21, 2006, the Toronto Star reported that Bernardo had admittedly sexually assaulted at least 10 other women in attacks not previously attributed to him. Most were in 1986, a year before the spree attributed to the Scarborough rapist. Authorities suspected Bernardo and other crimes, including a string of rapes in Amherst, New York, and the drowning of Terry Anderson in St. Catharines, but he has never acknowledged his involvement. His lawyer, Anthony G. Bryant, reportedly forwarded the information to legal authorities in November of 2005. In 2006, Bernardo gave a prison interview in which he claimed that he had, he had reformed and would make a good parole candidate. He became eligible to petition a jury for early parole in 2008 under the Faint Hope Clause since he committed multiple murders before the 1997 Criminal Code Amendment, but did not do so. In 2015, Bernardo applied for day parole in Toronto. According to the victim's lawyer, Tim Danson, it is unlikely but that Bernardo will be released in any capacity due to his dangerous offender status. In September 2013, 
he was transferred to Millhaven Institution in Bath, where he is reportedly segregated from other inmates. In November 2015, Bernardo self-published A Mad World Order, a violent, fictional, 631-page ebook on Amazon. By November 15th, the book was reportedly an Amazon bestseller, but was removed from the website due to a public outcry. In October of 2018, he had been set to go to trial for possession of a shank while incarcerated. However, the prosecution dropped the charges due to their determination that there was no reasonable probability of conviction. Bernardo became eligible for parole in February 2018. On October 17th of that year, he was denied day and full parole by the Parole Board of Canada. His next parole hearing took place on June 22nd, 2021. It only took one hour of deliberation by the presiding judge for his application to be turned down. That's definitely a rough story to hear. I I can't believe that she was able to get such a good deal and serve so little time in jail. Uh, thankfully, he is still in prison today and will never get out. The two of those are, are monsters, and they both deserve to be in prison for life. Our next story comes from YourGhostStories.com and their experience living inside of a haunted house. I guess I'll start this story at the beginning and describe my childhood. When I was four, my family moved from Florida to a farm in North Georgia. At the time, it was four of us, my father, mother, younger brother, and me. The house we moved to was a very old farmhouse built in 1890, and everything in the place was original, with only the electrical wiring and plumbing being newer, though from the 60s themselves. The house was the epitome of what one would imagine of a haunted house. Old windows that rattled in the wind, no insulation anywhere, allowing for drafts to come and go as they please, wood floors, walls, and ceilings that creaked constantly and an old tin roof that leaked in the rain and popped in the sun. We also had several very old outbuildings that were quite creepy, though for a little boy they were fascinating. We owned a little over 200 acres, and growing up, I crawled all over that place. To this day, I do not know if the house had any kind of history, but years later, while clearing a back piece of our land, we did discover 20-plus Cherokee Indian burial mounds. This was yet another fascinating find, as I myself am part Cherokee, though barely 1 16th. That said, I doubt that they had any influence on the house, being more than half a mile away. But I will say that I saw a lot of interesting stuff in the woods surrounding them. Honestly, I can say that I truly loved growing up on the farm but it did not go without its dark history as well. My first accounts started when I was six, and really, based on my memory, went through my childhood in random succession. Growing up, I had little fear of anything, being taught that everything in the woods are more afraid of you than you are of it, 
I would walk the woods at night without a light. I could hear strange sounds in the house and find them cool and watch spooky movies and laugh. No, what I feared most as a child was going to sleep. And it wasn't just the nightmares, which were very frequent, but also the after effects of the night as well. Most of the times, the nightmares would wake me up in a cold sweat or shaking or in physical pain, but sometimes I would wake with a black eye or bloodied lip. At first, my parents would say that I probably rolled out of bed and hit the floor or maybe tripped on something while going to the bathroom and not remember it. It wasn't until I was eight that things got a little more serious. My parents had different sleep schedules. My father being in bed by 10 p.m., whereas my mother would stay up until around midnight or so. On one of these nights, she had stayed up later than normal, watching something on TV until well after 1 a.m. She had gotten up during a commercial to go to the kitchen when she had heard something coming from our bedroom. Me and my brother shared a room. She stepped into the doorway, and I guess she heard me groaning and crying. So she switched on the light, which for some reason immediately blew out. I don't remember much up until the light flashing, which at that point I remember feeling as if my nightmare was real and I was fighting, fighting it off of me. I recall my mother screaming for my father, who came down the hall, flashlight in hand, and remember the beam of light hitting my face and him picking me up off the bed. They took me into the bathroom and washed my face, but I guess exhaustion took over because I don't recall anything after that. What my mother told me the next morning sent chills down my spine and gave me my first taste of real fear. She said that when she had flicked on the light, it looked like a dark shape had been on top of me and was swinging violently in my direction. She had thought that it might have been my brother, we fought a lot as brothers do, but she said that she could see him asleep in his bed. Since the light flashed off so fast, she said that she couldn't see anything after that except spots, but that when she saw my face, she had been terrorized by what she saw. Looking in the mirror that next morning, I got to see the truth. Black eye forming, dry blood in my nose, and a busted lip, and strange scratches along the left side of my face. Obviously, I did not go to school the next day, but I don't think staying at home helped much either. It was fairly quiet around the house, nobody really speaking about what happened. Dad went out working the cattle, and Mom doing the chores around the house, and me watching TV. Really, in time, what happened that night faded from everyone's minds, and only on certain occasions do I even think about it. I can say this much, though. Looking back over the years, I have analyzed what happened, and I can be fairly certain of this much. That was no ghost that haunted me. This was but only the beginning of what life had to throw at me. Well, that is going to do it for today. Thank you all for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the stories. If you could, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to share with friends and family. 
Make sure that you join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. If you do enjoy the stories, please consider helping to support the show by subscribing on Patreon with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier with the next monthly bonus episode set to come out tomorrow morning. Once again, thank you all for listening and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.